From friendly collaboration to deadly competition, the world's two superpowers are playing by different rules. In this special report, we take a closer look at how the U.S.-China relationship has evolved, where it's headed, and how it impacts every American. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Two superpowers facing off on the world stage. In terms of innovation and global trade, how are these two giants shaping up? China's doing very well. The U.S. is going down. Let's put it that way. That's Dr. Robert Atkinson, president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, the leading think tank on scientific and technological innovation in the United States. He just released a report comparing how nations are doing in terms of global market share in key industries. It's called the Hamilton Index, assessing national performance and the competition for advanced industries. So what are the key industries it considers? These are industries you can imagine, like computers and semiconductors, machinery, automobiles, drugs. When you put that, put all those together, those seven industries, um, China went from about four percent of global production in um, 1995, and now they're about 22, 23 percent of global production. So, a phenomenal story. As for how the Chinese regime has been able to make such big leaps and bounds. A simple way to put it for China would be that they decided to engage in a whole set of unfair practices, uh, massive subsidies, manipulation of their currency to keep the price down, uh, forcing foreign companies to transfer technology that then goes to the domestic Chinese companies. So a whole suite of things that gave them an unfair leg up. John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back, notes part of the issue is in the way the U.S. views its relationship with the Chinese regime. It's important we keep the distinction between a business competitor. You know, BMW kicked our butts. Japan and Korea have kicked our butts in the automotive market. And the end result is we get great Japanese, Korean and German cars and our own industry upped its game and now makes terrific cars. You know, so you could say the best car in the world today is a Tesla, and that's all American right now. That's okay. That's competition. Everyone wins. Uh, China, what we're dealing with here is a geopolitical rivalry that's cloaked and disguised as business competition, and it's not. That's because one of the key differences lies in how each side does business. For the Chinese regime, politics comes first while free markets go by trust and credibility. Dr. Atkinson points out an example. If you cross the Chinese Communist Party, you're a company, let's say, and you do something they don't like, um, and let's say you do something in the U.S. that the government doesn't like, government can't do anything to you and they won't do anything to you. They might not like it, but they can't do anything to you unless you break the law. In China, you don't have to break the law for the government to go after you, and the Chinese government does go after you. That's in terms of companies doing business with the Chinese regime. Now, from a country-to-country -country point of view, there's the neoliberalism view that global trade is a win-win. But when it comes to the Chinese regime, how is that playing out? When China says win-win, it means China wins twice. 
Um, and, you know, to be frank, neoliberals have been saying this for 40 years. And for 40 years, we've had a horrific trade deficit with China. We've had trillions stolen in intellectual property and technology. And, you know, and, and literally coercion, forced technology transfer. Where is the win-win? Nicholas Eftemiadis is a retired senior intelligence officer and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He notes how complex the relationship between the two countries is. It's interesting because there's actually collaboration uh, between our universities and our industries. There's a very intense collaboration. And at the same time, we also have a very, very aggressive competition. Another part of how we ended up here is how each country views competition. Dr. Atkinson says there are two major differences. In the U.S., number one, we believe in comparative advantage. So some countries are going to, you know, like, like we look at Japan and say, oh, Japan, they're great at, at ceramic technology. They're great at lasers. They're great at that. But we sell them airplanes, for example, or, or we sell them semiconductors. So we see that as they're good at something, we're good at something. That first point is where the idea of a win-win comes back into play. Dr. Robert Atkinson notes why that strategy doesn't pan out well for the U.S. when it comes to the Chinese regime. China, does again, doesn't look at it that way. China, if you look at what uh, Xi Jinping has said, if you look at the Made in China 2025 plan, they want to be good at everything. And secondly, the U.S. fundamentally believes in the rule of law and playing by the rules. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why we don't have as many weapons as we could use, because we obey by we obey the rules. We try to live by the spirit and the rules of the World Trade Organization. China just simply does not. Pelson notes that when doing business with the Chinese regime. Once the contract is signed, the negotiations begin. They say, oh, what are you talking about? You have to ship us. We just made that agreement. We need that part to finish our product. You agreed on that price. And they'll say, yeah, it's a little tougher than we thought. We're going to charge twice, twice the price. And what are you going to do about it? Speaking of those unreasonable prices, are these so-called good deals really worth it? Say you save a couple bucks. What's the trade-off? I got a call from someone whose company makes... Uh, Internet of Things devices. And he said, we're getting killed by this light bulb out of China. The price doesn't make any sense. I mean, we manufacture in, in low cost markets, but they're selling it so cheap, it's got to cost more just to ship the product. And he said, it's a light bulb. It doesn't have a microphone. It doesn't have a camera. But what we found is that the app that controls it gets access to all of your personal information on your iPhone or on your uh, Samsung. And they can see where you're going, who you're talking to, and it's going back through encrypted channels to a server back to China. Now, for those who might argue they're not a government official and don't work in intelligence. Who cares? It's going to be some very boring stuff they're seeing. But if you have an opinion on Facebook that they don't like, you might find that it's not getting posted anymore. People complain that Twitter was shadow banning or blocking people. Well, that's Twitter. That's an American company. You would not want China to say, we're going to start squishing down people that are supporting this presidential candidate. Their opinions aren't going to be as readable by their own friends, for that matter. So I think anybody runs the risk of, of being censored or, or uh, affected by Chinese influence. And if you think that's impossible, it's 
artificial intelligence, they don't have to look at 300 million American accounts. They've got a machine that's already doing that. They're tracking a billion and a half people every day in China. Another 300 million is, is not a problem for them. It goes beyond just the personal level, too. Afton Yadis explains. The problem, even in the academic world, where you do need collaboration, but the problem is when things like theft of research does occur, which occurs far more often than, um, than the government actually prosecutes, because most of the time it's not breaking a federal law. So it occurs far more often. But when these things do occur, there are no consequences. There are no consequences for the offending party. Coming up, we look at the trade war between the U.S. and China. Which side started it? And what would happen if the U.S. were to lose key tech and economic races to China? Experts weigh in on the risks, from national security to everyday life, and offer solutions. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Some might also argue that steps are being taken. For example, the current trade war between the U.S. and China. But first, let's take a step back. Dr. Atkinson says when it comes to the trade war... I think a lot of people have made a mistake on is they say, well, uh, the U.S., and particularly President Trump, started the trade war. Uh, that's not really true at all. It's as if you're in a, a shooting war and someone has been lobbing bombs at you for 15 years, and then you decide, oh, I better lob a bomb back, and then you get called for starting the war. Uh, what Trump did was just simply recognize that China has been playing not by the rules. They've been stealing intellectual property, forced tech transfer. I mean, you name it cyber theft. It's not playing by the rules. China has declared war on the U.S. economy uh, for really 20 years. As the two superpowers continue to compete across key sectors, what would the consequences look like if the U.S. were to lose? According to Dr. Atkinson, that depends on which industry is most at stake. What I worry about are the more advanced industries where they're very technical, uh, they're very hard to master. Think about building a, a wide-body jet or a 787 Boeing jet. It's very hard to figure out how to do that. It takes years and years and years of expertise. And the problem is, once you lose some of these capabilities, so if our firms get put out of business or shrink because of Chinese competition. It's very, very hard to get it goes back ever again. But more than just the economic impact, concerns also come up when looking at how these industries are used. And the other reason this is so important is these industries are what economists call dual use. So uh, in other words, they have a commercial use, but there's a lot of military or defense spillover. And uh, if we lose a lot of these advanced technology capabilities, it, def it weakens our defense industrial base. In an effort to combat the Chinese regime's threat, the U.S. National Intelligence and Security Center, or NCSC, has prioritized the following five key sectors. AI, quantum computing, biotechnology, semiconductors, and autonomous systems. According to the NCSC report, these five sectors produce technologies that may determine whether America remains the world's leading superpower or is eclipsed by strategic competitors in the next few years. Pelson explains why these industries are singled out. In some cases, they're the building blocks of everything else. 
So if you can't take over the medical instrument industry and the telecom industry and the avionics industry and the automotive industry, get the chip industry. And now you've got the choke point. But for some of the other industries, it's not just controlling power in that one sector. Take quantum computing. This is a scary thought. All security is based on key encryption, which you don't have to understand the technology of it to know that even the NSA cannot crack your WhatsApp. At least they can't do it easily. Uh, so a, a casual encryption is bulletproof to everyone and anyone. And uh, quantum computing opens the possibility that all that goes away. Everything suddenly is exposed. And conversely, everything can be encrypted in a way that no one else could ever crack it under any measures. And if the Chinese regime does get there first, Eftemiata says... It also supports a lot of your artificial intelligence work and also supports a lot of their global influence campaigns. So it'll allow China to continue to assert influence over the world. Uh, it'll allow China to continue to break down global rule of, uh, of order, you know, global rule of, you know, rules of order. Uh, it'll allow China to become militarily you know, strong enough to compete or to challenge the United States are all global or all powers within its region, the South China Sea in particular. Given all these risks, how can we intervene? First up is awareness. I would suggest being very careful using China-based solutions, whether it's a software application, don't download, download any app that looks interesting to you and give it all the permissions. Look at who the company is, where they're coming from, and be careful about the permissions you grant. And if awareness is one part, training is another. Because training is always your cheapest, uh, most effective means of, uh, of protecting, you know, the, uh, the potential victim population. So training and awareness is a key component, but then we do have to have laws. You have to have laws that make it a point that if you're on the U.S. entities list, you know, it's not even a matter of us exporting. It means your university can't send students over here. You can't send money over here. You can't have a collaborative relationship over here. And most importantly, and I can't emphasize this enough, the U.S. cannot do this alone. They have to do this with their allies. They have to coordinate this with their allies, whether it be the entire NATO group or our key allies. The U.S. has to do this in concert with the world. It must be the world standing up saying, no more. You need to play by the, by the same rules everybody else is. After that, Dr. Atkinson lays out two more steps. One is uh, we need to pass this competitiveness legislation now that's in the House and the Senate, ideally the Senate version, because it's much better than the House version. And we can't then go, OK, well, we passed that. Let's, let's move on to other things. We've got to keep at it year after year after year. Uh, we can't take our eye off the ball of rebuilding and, and strengthening U.S. advanced technology competitiveness. It's just we're going to have to do that for the next 25 years minimum. But we also have to work with our allies to limit the ability of China to gain advantage by unfair means. Pelson argues for tougher laws. They have to bring the hammer down on the intellectual property theft. Uh, the way it's been done is companies are allowed to kind of step back from, from China. I saw that with, with Lucent, where there were three spies who stole um, uh, the software, the 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 um, really the crown jewels for a, a, a switch that Lucent was making. And I, I talk about this in the book. The CEO of Lucent said, we could have pressed for these three low-level people to go to jail, but 
China said to us, uh, if you if you cooperate in this prosecution, you won't be able to sell to China for a year, which would have been a billion dollar loss to a company that was just hanging on. I think what we have to do is have the government step in and say, forget that. You guys were stealing this IP. Your company in China is banned and all the companies in the free world will not do business with you. It has to be much firmer. Aftamniata says beefing up security is another aspect. The U.S. government needs to change and needs to support industry. And industry has to be a little more savvy than they've been and understanding that this isn't, um, this isn't sort of a nice playing field, that they are very, very much the target of foreign technology collection programs. And they really need to, to, um, to beef up their insider threat programs, their cybersecurity programs, and their standard physical security programs. I know it's invest an investment on the part of industry, of any industry to do this. And it's not money that they want to throw at, at a problem. However, we've seen a number of cases where hundreds of millions in innovation and research were lost due to single employees, and, and no business can, can afford that for any great length of time. Zooming out from the institutional level to the grassroots, what can the average Joe do about all this? Dr. Atkinson adds people should make it an issue to consider at the polls. It's time to put this as an issue. The, the elected official for Congress, a senator, House member, president, what are they saying about this issue? Are they saying something that's intelligent and thoughtful and moving the ball forward? Or are they just saying, no, no, uh, some people on the right, some Republicans say, oh, no, government shouldn't do anything. We should just have a free market. Well, that's not going to get us anywhere. And some Democrats say, oh, the last thing we should do is give any money to business. We can't do that. That's not going to get us anywhere. So they're really good members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that are very thoughtful about this question. And voters need to ask their elected officials, where do you think, where, where do you stand on these issues? What, what would you do? Uh, and start to pull the, pull the electri electoral voting lever on that. Um, that, to me, is the best thing voters can do, as well as just paying attention to the issue. And if steps aren't taken at every level of society, he warns what could lie ahead. What made America the most powerful country in the world, the richest country in the world, was because we were leading in advanced industries. And we're no longer doing that. And if we can't get that back, then I really worry for the country's future. So we just need to buckle up and really put our mind to it and continue to do what hopefully what Congress is going to do soon. It's not just the prospect of a bleak future ahead. It's one that needs a complete overhaul in terms of how we approach the relationship between the world's two superpowers. It's unfortunate to me, but uh, the U.S. policy towards China for 30 plus years to me has been characterized by ignorance, arrogance and greed. You know, we, the, the ignorance on not understanding what the CCP was like and what its objectives were and ascribing to it a, a, a different type of a, a behavior than, than it was actually doing. The arrogance on expecting that, oh, everyone in China just wants to be freedom-loving and like in America, really arrogant on the part of our policy leadership, and the greed, which was our politicians and many of our industries, and just trying to maximize their wealth. Uh, it, it's got us in a very poor position three decades later. And if it goes on another decade, it may not be a recoverable position. So it's something that the entire nation has to pull together to address.
Given all these sectors, from power over key industries to a choke point in trade to stealing people's personal data, the Chinese regime isn't a competitor that will help push the United States to the next level. Rather, experts warn if we continue along our current trajectory, the Chinese regime will decimate the U.S. on the global stage. But it's not too late. Those same experts add there are still solutions. And the choice is up to each person to help decide the future. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Every once in a while, something comes along so masterful, it leaves you in awe. So inspiring, it changes your life. So beautiful, you wish it would never end. When that happens, it's something not to be missed. Shen Yun, an all-new production every year. performance was enchanting. I feel better about the world. I feel uplifted. It touches you. It really does. The expertise of the dancers was really, really strong. To know that it was live music was really fantastic. We didn't want to miss this. Make sure you see it. Have to come. Life-changing.